<laughs> Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. It's great to see everyone. What an awesome group. We're going to get started. We want to always begin and end with gratitude. So we want to start with these guys here behind the counter, our friends at the Windy Saddle, because they are awesome. And they treat us so well. We want to thank also goldentoday.com. They promote our events, and they promote lots of other awesome stuff that happens around town. If you aren't signed up yet and you're sort of curious, goldentoday.com, if you go to their website, they have a few different emails that you can sign up just to receive on a daily basis that kind of tell you what's going on around town with events or businesses or gossip. Just kidding. You have to get that yourself. <laughs> We're going to start, uh, as usual, with our beer ambassador, Frank Blaha. He's going to come up here and share some wisdoms with us. Here's Frank. Hello, everybody. And it's another uh, satisfying turnout for Golden Beer Talks. How many years have we been doing this? Is this our fifth year? Four and a half. Okay. So we're going on five years. And today we have Golden City Brewery as our featured brewery. And we have a dryerish stout, and we have their Evolution IPA that are uh, both on tap. And I think they're both excellent beers because ultimately, when I'm picking the beers, I'm always thinking, if there's leftover beer, and I wind up taking it home and buying it essentially from Windy Saddle, is this going to be good beer to have? And so ultimately, that, that's one of my criteria. But we also have Golden City uh, Brewer here, the head brewer, Derek, who's been the head brewer for a few months now. And since they're here, and since this is their 25th year, I'm going to have Derek come up in a moment. But I also wanted to call out Fred Linton, who is also uh, one of our supporters for Golden Beer Talks, and he represents Coors when we are rotating through Coors Brewery. And I don't see any of the other breweries represented here. Hmm? Well, Janine Sturdivant, who's the, one of the owners of Golden City, or the owner, the sole owner, one of the owners. Okay. All right, so I'll say both of those are really good beers, and I'll let Derek come up and, and speak to it from a brewer's perspective. All right. All right, the two beers are the Evolution IPA. That's our flagship IPA. And what's interesting about that is we change it every single batch. So that, that keeps it fun. Yeah, it evolves. It, people are like, this is different. I'm like, yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, what we did different this time is we got a German hop called uh, Hollertower Hulmelon. And what that did was it ended up smoothing out all the flavors of the, um, the really bitey, piney, and citrusy notes, smoothed them all together, and turned this one into one of the more drinkable batches we've ever done. So we'll probably be doing that again next time and changing something else. Um, yeah, the, uh, the dry Irish stout, or the dryrish stout, is um, what? It's a very simple recipe. It's 10% roast barley. It's roasted about 550 degrees. So that is very, very black. It leads to an astringent, dry kind of mouthfeel. Um, big commercial examples would be like Guinness. And should have a little bit of body left. And it's actually very light, even though it's dark in color. And that's about it. Thank you. Yeah. That was awesome. That's our first uh, personal appearance by a brewer. That was really fun. <laughs> We're going to bring up our speaker, Dr. Brian Simons. He is a Goldenite and lives here in our little town. He first came here to get a Ph.D., and like a lot of people who do that, he found out Golden is awesome, and he had to come back. So he's going to come up here and talk to us about lasers. Come on up, Brian. Thank you very much. Um, so first of all, uh, thank you for having me. I, I think I kind of uh, forced myself upon you. So thank you. Um, <laughs> So it's true. Uh, my wife and I, Mary, we moved here uh, 12 years ago. 
and did kind of fall in love with the place. And the original goal was to come here to go to school, uh, to climb, and uh, to make solar cells. Uh, and so I did that for a while and then graduated. Um, needed to find a postdoc, and so we went to the other side of the mountains um, in Salt Lake City, and that's where I started to do laser processing of, of solar cells. And so I was still kind of on this, uh, this track of, you know, doing good and, uh, and making clean energy. Uh, and then reality set in again and needed to find a job and still wanted to stay in the mountains. And this job in Boulder opened up with laser welding, and a friend of mine had told me about it. And I could not have been less interested. Uh, you know, metals are boring. Um, welding is dirty. Uh, and I don't know anything about it. Um, but but it was here, and so I took the job, and I like to tell that story because ultimately I was really, really wrong. And in the last few years that I've been doing this, uh, it's really amazing. Uh, melting metal with light is a lot of fun, uh, and the physics is really, really interesting. Um, so as I talk... hear me without the microphone or I should use it okay um, so I'll pass around some things uh, so you guys can kind of have a, a tangible sense of uh, what a weld bead looks like uh, on metal uh, with when you use a laser so we'll pass a few around um, and before we dive into a little bit about uh, what laser welding is used for and what we're doing uh, to study laser welding, I kind of want to paint a picture of, um, of how you can use light to melt metal. And so, you know, when you think about it, it's kind of counterintuitive and doesn't maybe make sense. Uh, so most metals are pretty shiny, right? And so how do you shine light on it and actually get it to, to melt it so you can make this mechanical bond. And so to kind of paint this picture of what happens, um, so you start with your shiny piece of metal and you take a really intense laser beam and you focus it onto the surface. And because your surface is really shiny, 70 or 80% of that reflects and is lost. But you have such a high concentration of energy that you actually melt a little bit of the metal underneath uh, that where that laser spot is hitting. And so that molten pool of metal is still actually really shiny, so you're still dumping most of the light. But this uh, molten puddle starts to get these ripples. And these ripples kind of act like uh, surface roughness, and so you get some increased absorption there. And so you keep heating this molten pool, and you start to vaporize some of the metal. And so this vapor stream will shoot up away from the surface. And the reaction of the molten pool is to kind of sag. So it's a, it's a recoil pressure from this vapor jet coming up. And so this is kind of like if you're, if you see a trampoline with a really heavy person in the middle and it kind of sags, it's the same thing that's happening. And so that, that cavity that's forming makes light kind of bounce a few extra times. So that increases the absorption a little bit, which increases the melting, which increases the vaporization, which makes that depression even deeper, which absorbs more light. You kind of have this feedback mechanism going. And so in this really short amount of time, you get this cavity that absorbs essentially all of the light that, uh, that you're hitting it with. And so this is something that's unique with laser welding uh, that if those, for those of you who do any other kind of welding, uh, you can't get because you don't have this high concentration of energy. And so all of the advantages of why industry is moving towards lasers uh, kind of comes back to this idea that you can get this really deep weld very, very quickly. Okay. So you guys all have this cartoon in your head? Um, I'm going to pass around these other objects. Uh, so these are samples we've been given by different manufacturers. Uh, this is, uh, you know, a thin piece of sheet steel that's bonded to a, a thicker body, and you can see this small weld bead uh, across that. Uh, and here's kind of the same thing, but in plate form. Uh, this is nice because you can actually see the the weld bead on the side. And so, okay, so where would you find uh, laser welding? And so in some instances, uh, manufacturing will use it to replace an existing welding uh, technology. Uh, and that's because you can create these deeper welds faster. So basically, you can uh, speed up your process line. You can make uh, more parts more quickly uh, and make more money. Um, there's an example that I like to use here because it involves a, a local company um, where they... 
it's a company called NFT, if any of you know them, but they're kind of a, a small custom fabrication shop, and uh, I actually shouldn't say small. They, they deal in a lot of different industries making custom parts for aerospace, uh, energy industry, and one of their main product lines are these um, stainless steel nuclear containment vessels, uh, nuclear waste containment vessels. And uh, a couple years ago, they switched from a traditional welding process to a laser welding process, and they went from making 100 cans a week to 150 a day. Uh, so that was over a tenfold increase, and that's basically just, you can get a deeper weld faster. Um, and the other place you find laser welding a lot are places where you need uh, really precise welds. Uh, so this is primarily in the uh, electronics industry and the uh, medical device uh, industry. Uh, so because you have uh, this energy that you can focus to a very fine point, uh, it allows you to make um, really small parts. And so some examples of these are, uh, uh, so stents, uh, I'm sorry, stents. My wife's a heart nurse and she always corrects me when I say this wrong. <laughs> Uh, so you guys know what stents are. These are these implantable things that you put inside your arteries when they get clogged to hold them open. Uh, so one way to make these is to uh, take little wire loops, kind of crimp them, and then stack them together and just tack weld uh, with a laser on all the joints. Uh, and this is something that can then be implanted and uh, hold your arteries open. Um, pacemakers are another good example. So these are kind of an interesting example because you have uh, an electronic device that relies on lasers for making a lot of the components, but then it's housed inside of something that has to be sealed so that it doesn't interact with your body and then can, you know, last as an implantable device for a decade or more. And so uh, there's companies um, that primarily use lasers to, to create those seals. Okay, so um, why are lasers important and why is it important that, that we... Uh, study them, and in particular, why do I spend taxpayer dollars to study them? <laughs> so to answer that question, I, I like to step back and actually look at welding in general. So this is all welding, not just laser welding, but um, anytime you use energy to, to join two pieces of metal. And there was a study that came out a few years ago that showed that um, companies that represent one-third of the total U.S. GDP have identified welding as a, critically, a critical enabling technology. So that means a third of the economic output of the nation has said that we wouldn't exist without welding. So that's a big number. And it's also been predicted that lasers could be up to 25% of all welding. So if you take 25% of one third of the US GDP, anybody have any idea what that is? 1,200. Slightly more. Um, it's, it's about a trillion and a half dollars that you could say could be enabled uh, just because of laser welding. And so that's a pretty big motivation. And the reason to study it uh, is that currently, instead of being at 25%, we're at about a half a percent. And the reason for that disparity is basically process development is just slow. And so if you have a process that you want to use a laser for, it takes a lot of time and energy to kind of iteratively go through this trial and error process to figure out what the right settings are. And what manufacturing would really like uh, to speed this process up uh, is to have some machine that you could dump your idea into or a CAD file and have the machine spit out an answer of, how to weld it, where to weld it, what laser to use, uh, how much power to put in and for how long, and really cut out that entire expensive iterative process. And so that doesn't exist. And the reason that doesn't exist is because we really just don't understand the physics well enough. Uh, they say welding is an art, right? The same is true for laser welding, and that's because there's no equation you can write down that tells you and explains that whole cartoon that I first tried to illustrate for you guys. Uh, and so that's where uh, we think, you know, as a government lab, we come in, especially a government lab in the Department of Commerce, where our main goal is to develop uh, measurement techniques to, to aid industry. And so that's what I want to kind of talk about a little bit now is some of, the, uh, some of the ways that we're helping to improve measurement capabilities uh, to measure uh, different parts of this process. So... Um, the first thing, so the group that I work at, at NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, um, it's this big uh, kind of like Death Star looking facility up on 93 when you're going into Boulder. It hasn't been renovated since the 
50s when it was put in. Um, but our main uh, mission in our group is actually measuring laser power really, really accurately and calibrating uh, laser power meters really for the world. And uh, on the high power end, uh, which is kind of where I work, uh, and which is what got us into this laser processing world, um, the way that they have measured really big lasers, uh, laser power for a long time has been to basically uh, you shine your light on something, uh, you heat it up and you measure this temperature rise and then you can relate that temperature rise to how much energy was dumped into it over the amount of time that your laser was on. And so the analogy here is if you wanted to know the flow coming out of a garden hose, you could take your garden hose and put it into a bucket for a known amount of time and then at the end of that time, you could measure the amount of water, and you could say, on average, the flow coming out of my hose was this. Same way for laser power. This doesn't work very well for manufacturing. So if you are uh, making something, uh, you can either make something with your laser or you can measure it, right? So if you have to constantly move your laser and go heat something up, you don't actually know what the laser is doing when you're making the part. You're just measuring it before and after and assuming that it's kind of doing the same thing. And... We thought that this was kind of a problem and not a really precise way to do things. And so a few years ago, some people that I work with started to think about how else can you measure really big lasers without uh, absorbing it? And this idea of uh, using radiation pressure uh, came up. Uh, so you guys familiar with radiation pressure? Good. Okay, so, um, so, so you actually are, I, I think. Uh, and that's the fun part. So radiation pressure is this idea that Light doesn't have mass, but it has momentum. And so when it bounces off of things, it imparts that momentum on the thing it bounces off of, the same way as a tennis ball does. And so this is, uh, you know, you've maybe heard of, like, solar sails. So this idea that you can put these huge sheets of mylar, attach it to a satellite in space, and the, the radiation pressure from the sun will carry it out into space. Or um, if there's any astronomy buffs, and the, the tail of a comet will always point away from the sun as it goes around, and that's because of the radiation pressure, in part. Um, and so this momentum per photon is minuscule, it's tiny. But when you have really big lasers, uh, this pressure starts to be kind of macroscopic. So um, a typical laser power that you might use for, uh, for laser welding um, is about 10 kilowatts. So the mass equivalent of 10,000 watts of laser power uh, is about 10 milligrams uh, which is, I'm sorry, five milligrams, which is about how much a mosquito weighs. So this is really small, right? But I bet if you closed your eyes and you put a mosquito in your hand, you could probably tell there was something there. And so it's this idea that it's small but measurable. And so the first way that we tested this was we took a laboratory scale, so something that you'd find in like a chemistry room, uh, and took the balance pan off, put it on its side, grabbed the shiniest mirror we could find, and put it in front of the biggest laser we could find, and, and it worked. We, you know, the needle moved, which for first off, that's great. And so over the last couple of years, we've kind of developed and refined this technology um, and have done very careful measurements to show that uh, using radiation pressure is a viable way to get very accurate measurements of uh, high-powered lasers. And so this is great because we're no longer absorbing the light with this technique, right? So the light bounces off, you get your reading, and you can still use it to do something. And so the next kind of effort in, this, uh, in developing this is to, to miniaturize this whole thing. So right now it's about the size of, you know, a toaster. And what we want to do is be able to miniaturize it and to be able to put it inside of a laser weld head that you can bring, you know, at the end of your robot arm that's, you know, zipping across your metal part and making, uh, making all your welds. And we have, you know, a few prototypes of, of this in action. And, you know, now it's uh, instead of this, you know, balance that's, you know, yay big with a, a shiny mirror. Uh, it's now a little uh, silicon wafer that we've etched uh, a spring into, and then we can deposit our coating on top of it. Uh, so it, it's actually, it's a lot of fun, um, and that's a, that's a cool thing to see uh, get implemented. Any questions on that? Okay, we'll have Q&A later, so. i just like to give some room for breathing, yeah. So uh, this idea of imparting momentum, so you get a factor of two when you, have, when you hit it and bounce. If you just absorb the photon, you just get a factor of one. Uh, so you'll, you could still measure something, um, but 
it's smaller and you're still absorbing it, so you can't use it to do something else. But it would work. Um, okay. Did you have another question? So that is still true, <laughs> and it will always be true. Okay, so I'm being a little loose here, and you're calling me out on it, which is good. So, <laughs> um, so we're talking about a change in momentum, right? So photons, as far as we know, don't have mass, uh, but they do have this momentum. And so when it bounces off of something, there's a change in momentum, and there's this you know, really bedrock foundation in physics where you have to conserve that. And so this momentum leads to a force via, you know, Isaac Newton. That was his, you know, F equals MA type thing, uh, which is really force equals change in momentum over change in time. And I'm going on a tangent, but we'll get there. So, um, so the force is related to mass in the same way. And so because we're on Earth with the pull of gravity, you can quickly go from a force to a mass. And so we're measuring a force, but you can quickly go to this idea of how many mosquitoes. Does that make sense? Okay. So we'll hold on more questions. Cool, yeah. Um, so the other story I wanted to tell um, about what we're doing is something that I'm uh, pretty invested in. And it, it comes to do with this, uh, this problem that happens with, with not just laser welding, but, but all welding, which is, uh, so you have this part you want to make, uh, and you choose a particular metal alloy uh, based on the requirements of that part. Where, you know, for some mechanical strength or uh, a chemical property, it's, you know, it's corrosion resistance. Uh, and so you, you make your part out of that metal, and you have to join pieces together. And so when you do this weld, you heat it up past the melting point, past the vaporization point, and this alloy that you chose, which is made up of mainly iron, but some other things sprinkled in, all of these other things that give it the mechanical property you want start to evaporate at a different rate based on the, um, just the property of that element. And so what happens as you weld, the weld that resolidifies could be a slightly different alloy than the base metal around it because you've lost some of the, some disproportionately lost these, these alloying elements. Uh, and this can be a problem. This can lead to the failure of, of that weld. And so this has been known for a long time. People you know, have made bad welds as long as welding has been around. And they've taken these apart, and they've studied it, and realized that, oh, we lost too much manganese or whatever. Um, what you'd really like to do is you'd like to know what's coming out in real time, right? Like you'd, you'd like to have a, a technique or a device that could measure these individual alloying elements as they come out, as you make the weld, so that either one, you just stop and start over, or better yet, you feedback to your welding machine and you fix it. So you don't have as many wasted parts, basically. So that led us to try and figure out a way to see if we could, in real time, and without contacting, without messing up the weld process, um, measure these, these alloying elements. The problem is, there's not a lot of this stuff. So a lot of the elements that matter for the metallurgy of the part are in really low concentration, so they're really hard to measure. And so what we came up with was uh, something, uh, an optical technique. So we, we look at the process. And so um, when I took this job, I knew nothing about welding. And so the first thing I did was YouTube laser welding. <laughs> and if you do that, which I recommend, uh, you see these, uh, this, this really bright light, right? It's like the reason you wear a welding mask is because you have this really bright emission. And what that bright emission is, is it's a hot gas made up of all these alloying elements. And so you block it out, but there's also information in there. And so the way that we're pulling this information out is really similar to, um, remember like high school chemistry, and you do these experiments where you'd have like a Bunsen burner, and you'd stick some mystery powder in the Bunsen burner, and you would use a special viewfinder, and you'd see all these lines stack up, and you could compare that to a table and say that oh, these lines mean I have hydrogen or whatever in the mystery powder. And that's really similar to what we're doing with laser welding. So uh, we've kind of started with that concept and, and built on it, um, added a few extra lasers, because why not? And we can now probe this plume for a specific element that we care about in real time without touching it. So the process can continue and we can have our machine that says, oh, you're losing silicon and stainless steel. Anybody know that there's silicon and stainless steel? I didn't. 
Um, but there's so little of it um, that it makes it really hard to measure, but it's actually metallurgically very important. And so it's this kind of thing that we can do now, uh, now that we have this technique. Um, we talk to a lot of people. There's kind of two camps in the welding world. There's uh, people who really have to make stuff. Um, they don't necessarily need to understand it, but at the end of the week, they need to ship, you know, three dozen of this. Uh, and it's always humbling to go visit those people because then there's the other side, which are the academics who really just want to study this um, really interesting, you know, light matter interaction in this like an extreme environment. And this huge chasm kind of exists between the two communities. And I think that's kind of where we are is to develop these tools that you could conceivably use in a real world environment, uh, but that also kind of give insight to this uh, really rich area of, of physics. Um, and so that's what I have for now. Um, do we have all those metal parts that are floating around here? Okay, yeah, Mark has ended up with all of them. Um, <laughs> so there, um, there's a couple ideas. I, I was trying to think of things to give you guys a sense of what I, when I say like intense laser light and, and uh, you know extreme light matter interaction um, to give you kind of like a tangible sense of what that actually means. And so uh, we'll have prizes for answering these questions. Um, so one thing I came up with was. You know, in order to form this, this deep cavity, this really unique scenario that, that happens with laser welding, how many laser pointers would it take if you focus all of them down to an area that's the cross-section of a human hair? 72. Slightly more than 72. I will accept orders of magnitude, so 10, 100, 1,000, so on and so forth. The answer is 1,200. <laughs> Anyone? I'm... I'm not, I'm not leaving until somebody gets close. Six million? Six million's not terrible. It's smaller. So it's a hundred, uh, yeah, a hundred thousand is what you would take if you had all those. Mark, Mark, would you please give the man in the, the flannel shirt a, a prize? So, uh, my, my, <laughs> um, so my last question is one that uh, comes out of, so my background is all in studying solar cells, right? And a unit that we used a lot in, in that community is one sun. So one sun is the solar irradiance, so power per unit area uh, on the Earth's surface, you know, at noon, kind of this latitude on a clear day, and that's about a kilowatt per square meter. So how many suns would it take to get the right power density to form this deep cavity laser weld? 10, More than 10,000. <laughs> Close. <laughs> we'll call, you, so it's 10 million. 10 million suns, and you can get the irradiance necessary if you can focus it down to a small enough area, uh, and that's what it takes. So when I talk about light matter at the extreme, it's pretty extreme. That's it. So we'll do a Q&A after we get another beer or whatever else, but we'll come back up here in just a few minutes. Thanks. All right. We're going to... Am I on the audio? Matt? Am I hot? On here? Okay. We're going to get started with Q&A, and um, we have... A new addition to introduce as part of the Q&A. A new toy. Exciting. So we always ask our speakers to repeat the questions so that the questions are on the recording. And we no longer have to do that. We can just throw you the cue ball, which is also a microphone. And there's a speaker on the one side. And we are Talking to taking the black suggestions dog. for a name for the cue ball. This is a little something to think about. Okay. All right. We, you, don't have to, yeah, you can think about it. We're going to do the Q&A right now, and then if you have some ideas, let us know. Who has the first question? Right, come up here. I'm going to go with the first question because I have the cue ball. <laughs> so my first question is, is, how does laser welding compare to something like 
friction stir welding as far as right. heat affected zone and other so, qualities. Um, do you want to talk about friction stir welding or do you want me? You can. I'm not an expert in it. N neither am I. <laughs> so uh, friction stir welding is this, um, it's this type of welding where you, um, you, you, you spin two parts very quickly and you just kind of ram them into each other and they don't actually melt. They just kind of form this taffy. Um, and this is advantageous in a lot of uh, metals. Uh, aluminum's a big one that's particularly hard to weld. Um, so you, by not fully melting and forming this taffy, you kind of skip uh, different metallurgical phases uh, that cause problems. Um, and laser welding is different. Um, so I'm not quite sure how to... So they each kind of have their own application. Um, and, and, yeah, very different. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. I feel like friction stir welding was, like, an accidental discovery. Somebody had, like, a CNC machine that, like, went crazy. It just kind of, like, jammed a, you know, a bit into a material and it stuck together. So they... Hello. You've got the big massive wheel that gives your momentum and then you slam a part into it. Um, uh, they use that in aircraft engines a lot. The, the big discs that they use for fan blades and things like that, they cram NASA them together. NASA uses them for rockets. They'll spin these like four meter cylinders into each other. It's pretty cool. Yeah, what, what we use on the spacecraft that I'm on is a little um, kind of a punch that they yeah. that has a flare to it and you punch it into the material between two that you're holding together and then you kind of stir as you go and it melts yep. it so much that it... Yeah, yes. But and they're basically the same idea. Some, yeah. um, it's just in one, you're actually, there's not a second piece. Right. You're just kind of forcing them into each other. Right. But what's interesting to me is you're never actually melting them. And that kind of blows my noodle. Like, I'm not a metallurgist. Um, I just pretend to be one. And I don't understand how that's possible. But anyway. <laughs> All right. So I was actually paying attention during your talk, but um, someone was talking during this part. And so you said up to 25% of welding could be done with lasers. And what percent is going on right now? It's in the U.S. somewhere less than one. Less than one. Yeah. And what's holding it back? So, uh, it, you know, in our view and in talking to people, and so this 25% is not a hard number either. It's, you know, people who know more kind of gauge the field. Um, but it's, you know, it's, we like to say that it's idea, this idea that the process development is just slow. Um, and slow means money. Uh, so... If, you know, there's a lot of inertia in industry for existing welding technologies. And so to replace that, you have to spend time and money to develop new processes. Um, and lasers are a different beast. Uh, we find this a lot with, you know, talking to people in industry who have to find trained technicians who are really skilled welders but don't know optics. And, you know, it, it takes time to uh, kind of transition the workforce and the understanding. And... Again, we think that you know there's there's a an opportunity there for for measurement science to improve. So the better we you know equip the manufacturers to understand the process, or maybe you don't understand it, but we can give you the right tools to look at it while it's happening, and we can say fail or uh, pass or fail. Um, that that will help speed this uh, this transition up. There are other countries that are doing much better than us. Germany. So it can be done. I don't. I haven't heard of that one, but maybe. So okay, Mike Turk. What is the cost differential between conventional welding and laser welding? Yeah. So it, people have looked into this um, in a couple of different ways, but it really is process dependent. Um, so the few studies that I've seen. Um, so one of the big cost savings, one of the big cost savings comes, uh, from this fact that you can do welds much quicker. So you get a much faster travel speed. And so you either improve your, uh, throughput or you lower your capital expense. You don't have to run your equipment as long. So, um, 
trying to think of a, a, a hard number. And again, that really, that is difficult uh, because it is so dependent. There was one study that they looked at, so CO2 lasers, which is a kind of an older laser technology that's been around for a long time. And it, you know, for a long time, it was the only way to get a big amount of, a large amount of laser power was to use this, these CO2 lasers, which were, you know, an industrial scale, scale probably the size of this room, and it would take several engineers full-time to, to operate. And just by switching from that to a newer laser technology, so something you can buy off the shelf, um, they found that, you know, by, they used a, uh, assembly process to manufacture car doors, which is a common place where lasers are used. And by switching from an old laser to a new laser, they found about a 60% cost savings. Um, and it was primarily because of this fact that you can go much faster. Um, so improvement. Yes, but there are other things. So with laser welding, you typically don't have filler rods, which is a, another unique change. And, there, and there's some other things where there's a lot fewer consumables. Um, you don't have as much uh, gas. Um, and there's a, a large environmental cost uh, or advantage, too. Um, these lasers are really, really efficient. And because you don't have to weld as long, you don't have to run them as long, and so it's this multiplier that kind of trickles down. Um, oh, yeah. And I've actually thought about, like, you know, when I was studying solar cells and thinking I was going to save the world, just by switching everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, there's, I, I could probably reduce greenhouse gases more by implementing, you know, going from a half a percent to one percent. You'd probably make a bigger overall change uh, in that way. So that was a really long answer. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Thank you. I, I do have one more question. Shoot. So um, draw the picture of using laser welding on a automobile assembly line. How so? All right, you, you see the pictures, you know, the robots are going down, they're doing these quick welds, things like yeah. that. Is that an application for a laser weld? Absolutely. And to you, it would look, to me, it would look the exact same. So the way these lasers work is they're, uh, they, uh, the, they look like an industrial refrigerator, and then there's a cable coming out, and it's a fiber optic cable. So the light is delivered, uh, you know, by a little hose that goes to the end of your robot that zips over your part and makes the weld. And so it would look the exact same, more or less. But faster, yeah. Okay, quick question. The, uh, you mentioned CO2 lasers. What other sources are currently, you know, the... Uh, the I mean, there are... Uh, is LED coming into the game because of technology advances, or are we still stuck with crystal-based ruby lasers or whatever else is out there? Okay, good question. Um, it's re it really is the laser technology that's pushing laser welding into industry. Uh, so 10 or 12 years ago, uh, this technology came out of actually the, the telecom era. Uh, this laser company that was going uh, out of business like every other laser company at the time for telecom figured out a way to scale up their, their output. And it's a company called IPG, and they're now you know the biggest player in the world. They're one, I think the eighth fastest growing company in the U.S. period, like not tech company, but just company. And they've really perfected these really efficient, um, really robust, high-powered laser systems. Um, so when I say efficient, their wall plug efficiency, so that's power out of the wall versus optical power out of the laser, is over 50% that you can call up an order off the shelf today. Um, it's pretty impressive. Uh, these CO2 lasers are kind of dinosaurs, and they're maybe 8 or 10%. Um, and they're just getting better every year. So does that answer your question? What are, what are those based on? So those are, uh, it's a euterbium fiber laser. And so the, it, this is a unique design. And there's other ways to do this. This is just what they do. Um, are you familiar with lasers? And kind of, okay. So the gain medium is a euterbium doped fiber that they optically pump with a diode. And the advantage there is you have a large surface area to volume uh, so you can mitigate heat a little bit better. And then the light is already instantly fiber coupled. So then it makes it more efficient to dump it into a, a process fiber that you deliver to your weld piece. Um, there's so it's a combination LEDs and. 
Essentially, yeah. So you have these, you know, these these coiled fibers are surrounded by a bank of, of, of diodes that that pump them. Brian, my question is not nearly as deep. <laughs> I I think of these these welders standing there in their overalls and their you know, yeah. they got their helmet on and all that. How far away are we from them actually using that? You know, uh, of uh, you know, with a, with, a, with your laser versus the traditional. I mean, it's 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 definitely here, right? Like this is. There are industrial um, welding operations in industry today. Um, I don't. I can't speak to whether they're not they're wearing overalls. Um, but I, I will say so. Uh, you know, kind of speaking of you know, there's these two worlds, right? Like the people who make stuff and the people who think about making stuff. And a couple of years ago, we published uh, uh, an article in the Welding Journal. And, you know, like the front half of this, this, art, uh, this uh, journal is kind of a trade journal um, talking to people who need to make stuff. And then they publish a few technical articles in the back. And we were talking about this radiation pressure power meter. And um, we're flipping through this magazine after our paper was published. And there was a guy getting an award for, um, for uh, uh, like, forging. And he was wearing overalls and no shirt with, like, a big beard. And, like, and our paper's right next to it. And I thought that was actually pretty cool. <laughs> All right. Um, could you say more about the passivation gases that you use? And also, real quick, could you, can you get hot enough that you can actually sinter, like, heterogeneous materials, including ceramics and metals? Okay. Um, so the first question was about shield gas. Is that correct? So shield gas is used in all welding, and basically it's a, um, used for different reasons. In laser welding, you use really any kind of inert gas, and it kind of is metal-dependent, whether you use argon or helium is actually a pretty good one, or nitrogen. And it's really just to prevent the molten metal pool from oxidizing. Um, and in academic sense, we don't study it a whole lot. Um, there are people that do that. What are the different effects of, of shield gas? Um, basically, just, you know, to make a good weld, you have to have something. Um, and that's kind of my understanding of it. Your next question was about using lasers on different types of materials. Yeah, like ceramic metal sintering instead of welding. So um, this is where there's a whole lot of parameter space that you can explore and exploit uh, with lasers because you, you know, you can play with not just this localization of your energy in space by focusing it down to a small spot, but you can also play with time. So you can use pulse lasers. You can rapidly modulate your laser in a way that you can't do a, a traditional heat source. And that has really opened up this possibility of joining together materials that don't typically like to be joined together. Um, and, there are countless examples of, of people doing this. And, you know, when you talk about sintering, so sintering is where you, you know, have, you know, basically a powder that you join into a solid object somehow, either by pressing or by, you know, melting and bonding. And this is big for something like additive manufacturing, uh, which is basically that, right? Um, and there's, so additive manufacturing is using a laser on a powder bed to uh, make this 3D object from, you know, a CAD drawing. It's 3D printing, but with metals. Um, and there are people that are 3D printing bones, which is a ceramic. Uh, and there's people doing laser surgery by cutting open people's bodies and building scaffolds across broken bones on the fly. Um, it's awesome. Um, YouTube. So where is the industry headed? Is it going to get to where you can try to get smaller lasers that could be used in like confined spaces like shipbuilding? Or are they trying to get more efficient, powerful lasers that take all of the energy coming in and put it back out as light? The last part of the question tailed off. Sorry. Hmm? Are you trying to get a laser where it's like 100% of your power coming in is turned into light going out? Yes. Um, so that's a really good question. And ultimately, yeah, the, the more efficient your laser in, you know, in, in from a manufacturing perspective, that's just, you know, you spend less money to keep the lights on. Um, and so that's always going to be a goal. Uh, this idea of shipbuilding is actually a really interesting one. So this has been... Um, so the... So... Ships use these massive sheets of metal, right? Uh, that you have to join together. And there's problems and advantages of using lasers for that. Um, one of the advantages 
is this idea that with a laser you can get these really deep welds very quickly. So the idea of using on thicker metals makes sense. Um, the problem is because it's such a small spot size that you're focusing to, you have to put these massive sheets of metal, and by massive I mean like the size of this wall. You have to hang them together to where their gaps are, you know, no farther apart than the width of your hair, and that's tricky. Um, but there's a lot of people that are actively pursuing that. Um, does that answer your question? All right, one more. Shoot. So going back to the automobile assembly line, yeah. how long would it take to tune a laser razor to the point where you Did could you say laser razor? Laser. Laser, okay. You said laser razor. Oh, laser welder. Okay. To the point where it would be um, effective. In other words, you were saying that one of the drawbacks is it takes a lot of time to get them to the point where they're actually usable. That's a really easy question to answer because I have no idea. Um, people are doing it. And, you know, I mentioned Germany, and there are Volkswagen plans that you can go to where they have done this transition. But in terms of how much, you know, time and energy it costs, uh, I, I, man, I have no idea. Um, right. A common area where lasers are transitioning and, and car doors, and I'll tell this example because I, I think it's a neat one, and we all have a car door so we, we can touch something that's been laser welded. Um, the way they're putting these together now is, you know, they, they've figured out that they don't need to make uh, the whole car door structural, so they can put thick pieces of metal where they need the structure and really thin pieces of metal where basically the metal is just holding paint. Um, and so they kind of put these car doors together like a jigsaw, and then they just, uh, you know, zip a laser over the spots where you join them. So your car door has, you know, dozens, you know, upwards of 50 laser welds uh, that hold this whole thing together. Yep, that is that is becoming standard practice. Sorry, we'll come back. Uh, back to your uh, radiation pressure sensor. Yeah. Um, in a application like a robot welding, how do you handle the vibration and thermal on such a fine measurement? Such a good question. So, does that make sense? Uh, so this idea of like we're, this radiation pressure, so we're using the momentum of the transfer momentum of light on this scale, and um, you know that's great. But in reality, when you go to make something and you put this on a shop floor, there's all these vibrations, and there's you know you've got a robot that's moving around, um, and so you can no longer really use your you know simple laboratory scale that doesn't like to be shaken up. And so the way that we've uh, that we're developing to get around this is this. Uh, MEMS flexure. So we take a wafer of silicon and we etch a, a ring that's kind of supported uh, with, these, with this, this flexure design. Um, and so it, it becomes a spring. So the neat thing about this is we put, we make two of them actually, um, and we put them in series. So the first one has your mirror and the second one is just kind of a dummy. And so the reason you have that is when the first one feels a force, the second one doesn't move, so you can, you can uh, measure their distance with respect to each other, but they would both feel any environmental vibration. So as this thing moves around, you can, you, by having this dummy, you know what that vibration is, so you can cancel it off of the first one. Um, does that answer that question? Yeah. Great. The second one is about thermal issues, and the answer to that is always a better mirror. So there's no thermal issue if you, uh, if you reflect 100% of the light. The problem is nobody makes a mirror like that. Even a 99.999% reflective mirror, which is what we use, 0.001% of 100 kilowatts is still 10 watts of thermal energy, which is a lot. Um, so the answer is always a better mirror. Well, 1,200. 1,200. No. Uh, is there ever a case where you have fill rod? Is there ever a case where you have filler rod? Uh, yes. Um, you typically don't need it, which is, again, one of the advantages of laser welding. So the reason you have a filler rod in traditional welding is because you have to 
weld much more slowly to get the deep penetration or weld multiple times. And so you vaporize more and more material, so you have to fill that in. And so the reason you don't typically have to use it with the laser welding is because you can go so fast. However, there are people, when you do these really deep penetrating welds, so doing thicker pieces of metal for shipbuilding, for instance, um, people are playing around. You can always, like, there's no reason that stops you from using a filler rod. So in those cases where it's necessary, you can. Thinking of um, the applications, mm -hmm. and I was about dentist. I'm sorry. The dentist. Ooh, do I know of any dental laser? Well, it seems to make sense. It would be permanent. I mean, it wouldn't be. It would put dentists out of business probably because they would fix you once. I don't know if I would trust my dentist with a laser in my mouth, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I don't know of any yeah. people using it, but. Again, like I, you know, I've seen these videos of people using lasers yeah. to build bones on an operating table, and so I mean, you're there, right? Like it's not that crazy to think about doing that as well. Yeah, I was actually thinking um, what, how finite it can be. The size. Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. Yeah. So, in practice, it's typically about a micron. So a, mi a micrometer is one millionth of um, a meter, um, which is 200 times smaller than the width of your hair. Um, and you're limited there by just kind of basic physics. Um, it has to do with stuff. But it, that's about as small as you can go. Yeah, because I was thinking within computers. Yeah, so lasers are used in manufacturing of electronics um, today. Uh, there's, there's actually this great slide that a friend of mine in uh, from a, a big laser company gave me where he took an iPhone and like an exploded view of an iPhone and pointed to all the places where lasers are used to manufacture an iPhone and it's dozens um, it's it's yeah and welding was only one of them they use it to weld the battery uh, but all the others are you know interconnects or etching the glass you can use you can use lasers on transparent materials um, by kind of exploiting these cool phenomena um, but Yes. Anybody else? I thought you had one. Oh, no, it was Andrew. It was Andrew. <coughs> All right, I'm going to step up here then. Thanks. I want to say thanks first to Brian. <laughs> that is awesome, and we love our local speakers. And Thanks to all of you for coming here and for supporting Beer Talks when you could be doing something else, like watching the Olympics. Thank you for coming. And um, it'll be in replay. And I hope. <laughs> and next month we have a speaker from USGS with mapping, real-time mapping for wildfires. So we hope we see you next month. Yep. Have a good night.